Well, it is good to be here with you this morning. And like I said earlier, it is really good to be inside. You know, we have um, kind of making our way through the church calendar, and for, for several weeks we made our way through Ascension, service, Ascension Sunday, and then Pentecostal, Pentecost Sunday, and then Trinity Sunday. And, and each one of these we had a different color in our church. The pyramids were red for Trinity and for Pentecost. They were white for Ascension and white throughout Easter. And now we have arrived at what is called ordinary time. And the pyramids are green. Ordinary time. It's that middle time between the special occasions, between white and red and purple. There's a lot of ordinary time. A friend of, of mine back in Dothan, a minister, she used to say that you can tell God loves ordinary time for there is so much of it. We will remain green till November. Ordinary time. It's a time and a season to consider and grow in our faith. To grow in our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. To, to grow the kingdom of God that is within us and is beyond us. To grow the kingdom of God that is revealed here on earth in our little corner of the world and throughout all of creation. That's ordinary time. There's something to this middle season, this middle part of, of life. You know, I had a friend who um, used to say, and I, and I didn't really believe him, but it was, it was a very clever saying. We were talking about sports, and we, you know, we came to the, the subject of basketball, and he goes, I don't watch basketball. I can watch the last two minutes of a basketball game and tell you everything I need to know. Well, I don't know about that. You can watch the tip off into this final buzzer. There's a lot that happens in the course of that game. We can, you, know, you can ask Bob, he can watch the first inning of a baseball game and the last inning. There's a lot that happens in between. From the kickoff, opening kickoff of a football game to the final second of the fourth quarter, there's a lot that happens. It's the same for life. There's a lot that happens from the beginning until the end. And even within that large scope of a lifetime, if we break our lives down to chapters, even within chapters from beginning to end, there's a lot that happens. The seasons of life. There's a lot that happens within each season of life. We have two incredible passages in front of us today. In Samuel, in 1 Samuel, we have the elders gathering around Samuel. The prophet. We have to understand first that Samuel has a unique position in the history of Israel. His position is that of, of a bridge between the season of the judges to that of the kings. He is a judge and a prophet that makes that bridge. That takes this country, the people of God, the Israelites, from this time of judges to the time when they would have kings. Well, the elders gather around Samuel and they ask him, 
We, we want to know what it takes to have a king. We want a king. Everybody around us has a king. They have a ruler. They have a warlord. They have an advocate who does their politics. They, they, they have those folks. We want one of those folks. Give us a king. Well, this disturbs Samuel. Scriptures tell us that this, was, this didn't sit well with, with Samuel. And so he, he prays to God. And God tells him something really interesting. He says, listen to them. Listen to what they have to say. And then tell them the solemn truth. Give them the warning. Offer them the threat of a king. Tell them what it's going to be like. Give them the truth. Which he does. And if you look in the middle of that passage, there are a lot of sentences that begin with, he will take, he will appoint, he will take. He will take your sons and make them soldiers. He will take your sons and make them charioteers. He will take your sons so they will build implements of war. He will take your daughters to work in his palaces to be perfumers and bakers. He will take the best of your crops and the best of your livestock to work for him. He will take your slaves and you will become his slave. He will take one-tenth of all that you have. And one day, you're going to regret having a king and you will lament. You will cry out to God and God will hear you, but on that day, He may not answer you. There's something about that entire passage from the moment that those elders gather around Samuel and make their petition to the moment that Samuel begins to reveal to them the warning of the truth. And then we slide into the ending of this, of this passage where after hearing the warning the elders say we don't care give us a king we want to be like the other nations around us we want a ruler, we want a king we want somebody who will advocate for us we want somebody who will fight for us you know there's in the middle of this passage is the warning about the weaknesses of a king. And in this warning about the weaknesses of a king, we find the stark reality, the truth, the hard truth, that any time that we place a person or a thing or an idea between us and God, it becomes an idol. And it breaks the relationship between us and God. And Samuel tells the people of Israel when that relationship is broken and the hard realities of that broken relationship come cascading down on you and all that you have and all that you desire, you'll regret it. You'll lament it. And God will hear it. But perhaps on that day, He won't answer. But in God's good time, 
God will answer. Out of God's steadfast love for His people, for all of creation, God will answer. That's the good news. That's the gospel. You know, there's a there's an old uh, psychological uh, understanding and, and cognitive um, psychology that talked about this what what the what the mind remembers, what the brain kind of grabs a hold of, and there was there's there's a there's an idea called the the primacy effect. And that's the things that we hear first. And that primacy effect grabs a hold of, of our brains. And we can remember that first thing we hear, that opening remark, that, that, that opening argument, that sticks with us. But there's, a, there's another effect. It's called the recency effect. And that's the last thing we hear. That sticks with us. That argument, that last, that last moment, the last piece of the argument that sticks with us and we kind of find that here in these passages we've read today we see in the beginning the people wanting a king that's the that's the primacy effect and in the the end they still want a king that's the recency effect it's in the middle that we can find meaning It's in the middle of life. It's in the middle of a season. It's in the ordinary times that we can find God revealing God's will and God's understanding and God's self, God's truth. But it's more intentional. We have to be intentional about living in the middle. We know a lot about the middle. We've experienced it. If you remember back in about March the 15th of 2020, what happened? we didn't gather in this room we went to virtual only that's a promising effect for me and for many of us that life changed for us in that moment in that week that was a difficult decision to make to make the call we were not going to gather in this room for worship that we would go to virtual only which lasted for months painfully lasted for months And then, in August and September, people began to gather in the room again. And then just last month, we removed our mask. We took the ropes down. And today we're going to have communion. That's that recency effect. Those are the moments after the middle that stick with us grabs our attention. But think about the middle. Think about all those months in the middle, what we learned, all the things that were informative and transformative for us. How did life change and bring us together in ways that we could not have imagined? We never would have guessed what we would be able to do, what God would be able to do through a community of faith. That's the meaning in the middle. You know, Jesus is at his home and people are gathered around him and they've been asking questions. They've been asking lots of questions. 
because they're nervous. They want to know what his authority is. How does he have this power to speak and do and act? Where does that come from? Who is this man that he can say and do what he does and get by with it? So the elders, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the priests, they gather around and they begin to ask questions. Who are you? Where do you come from? Where does your power come from? Who, under whose authority are you speaking and doing these things? It all begins to take shape in Mark chapter 2. And later in Mark chapter 3, we have Jesus again after, after traveling the Galilean countryside, offering teachings with authority, offering healings and miracles with authority and power of God, he arrives back home to a crowd. And on the front end, we have his family. They've heard what he said. They've heard about what he's been doing. And they've heard the accusations from the scribes and the leaders. And they've come to take him away to protect him. He's been accused of being Beelzebub, operating under the authority of Beelzebub, under Satan, the tempter, all that is evil. So he begins to describe how there's no way that he could be from Satan, from Beelzebub, and cast out demons who are from Satan. Because such a house divided would fall apart. It's over. And he offers this incredible, very difficult teaching about blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. That's the one unforgivable, that's the one sin that carries eternal guilt. Maybe what he is saying is that as, as people, as the leaders who would gather and the scribes who would question, begin to accuse him of being evil, they've accused what is good for evil. What is holy as nothing more than profane. And in making that kind of conscious, intentional, Using argument is a blasphemy that cannot stand. When we take these two passages together, where the elders gather around Samuel to make their petition for a king, and the elders gather around Jesus to accuse him of having illicit and evil intentions and authority. Maybe what we can see here, maybe what we can find here, it goes back to the truth of what Samuel says, of what God says to Samuel, which is basically anything that comes between God's people and God is a problem, a serious deadly problem 
and, and maybe even if it's a king like other nations, a ruler, a governor, an advocate, maybe it's even family. If it gets between us and God, it becomes idolatrous. And that will lead to ruin. That will lead to us lamenting and regretting our lives. Maybe what Samuel wants us to know, and what Jesus in the gospel wants us to understand, is that anything that we place between God and us, even a king, we begin to realize the brokenness and the weakness and the problems of a king and anything that is in between us and God, it's not just the brokenness of that thing or of that king. But it's our own brokenness. That's what's revealed. We can only prop up between us and God broken, brokenness. Because that's all we have. God is good. God is unbroken. God is steadfast. Maybe that's what Samuel wants the elders to know. And maybe that's what Jesus wants the scribes to understand that indeed only the good that represents the good is understood as good can stand. Only God can be God. Anything else is idolatrous, is broken and lamentable. I pray for us as individuals and as a church, that we spend our ordinary time, our ordinary days, this green season, being intentional about finding God's revelations for us and God's truth for us and growing in that truth. To be the church, the community, the disciples that God has called us to be. To grow nearer to God being led by the Spirit of God, redeemed by the Son of God, so that we can show the love of God to the world. <coughs> In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.